0: Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, This week, we'll be talking about, you know, once again, what stood out from all the leagues that are going on all around the world. Uh, We'll be talking about McKenny again, and Stefan and the MLS craziness that is going on. Uh, VAR of course because that is a huge topic this week. As I said, uh, MLS uh, and the uh, goings on on and off the field when it comes to MLS. Documentary talk. I saw a couple documentaries that I want to mention and so much more. But first joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy. A soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Tuesday, September 29th, and I guess I should pause there and apologize. This is a day late. Uh I had a little uh thing to do with Fox and CONCACAF with the Gold Cup draw. So that uh meant that we couldn't record on Monday. So we were recording on Tuesday morning, September 29th on this year of 2020. Mossy, how are you?
1: And we'll discuss the CONCACAF draw uh In the Ask Alexi segment, Uh, I am doing well, Um, adjusting to this Tuesday taping. It kind of throws off the whole equilibrium of my week, but uh, we'll, we'll get through it.
0: You are, uh, as I know and as our listeners and viewers know, a creature of habit. Uh, so I try not to throw too much at you because uh, first off just out of uh, self-preservation, not my own not just my own but all of us at Fox so many people rely on you and that incredible mind of yours that anything that is going to throw you out of whack in any way that is going to negatively affect our ability to do our job, uh, should be thought of twice before doing, but it, it, it couldn't be helped. We had to do it. So I hope that you are back on course. I hope that you can recover, Mossy, and at least give the people what they uh, what they expect when it comes to the State of the Union pod. Uh, any? Uh, I, I have a couple of interesting things that I saw this week. But first off, let me get to you. What, what have you viewed this uh, over this past week, Mossy? Because I'm always interested to in see what your uh, your latest is.
1: Well, we discussed the Tottenham documentary last week. So staying on that tip, uh, Amazon Prime did release this uh, mini two episode doc on Leeds United last season. Remember they had chronicled the campaign before when they almost got promoted. And then lo and behold, they come back and do get promoted. So they felt like they had to pay that off. So it's almost like bonus episodes to the previous uh, documentary where it's just just two 45 minute episodes that zip through the season fairly quickly, nothing special. Uh, But the last 10, 15 minutes are pretty cool when they do get promoted and showing how much it meant to the fans and the community and all that. So. Uh, I would recommend checking that out. The other thing I watched was a uh, documentary on Amazon Prime called Six Dreams, which chronicles the 2017-18 La Liga campaign, uh, sort of through the lens of uh, various figures, uh, some players, a sporting director, a couple coaches at different clubs. And uh, there's no narration. It just kind of whips around from from location to location. Uh, it's six episodes are each about an hour long. It's not for everybody. It's a little bit hipster. It can be a bit of a slog at times, but uh, I I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, La Liga is a league that hasn't really been chronicled much. You know, All, all these documentaries have been done from of these teams. I can't think of one that's been done on a La Liga team. So it was a neat sort of behind the scenes look at that league in Spain and all that. So I, I enjoyed that as well. I'm
0: assuming it's subtitled?
1: Uh, yes. I believe so.
0: Uh, the, the Leeds thing, um, did you glean anything more about the, the
1: romantic, the,
0: the legend that is uh, Bielsa?
1: No, he's actually not involved a whole lot. I, I, I get the feeling that he probably told him, look, one season's enough of this, and <laughs> I'm not dealing with you for another campaign because he, he barely spoke at all, barely appeared. Obviously, they reference him, but it's more focused on the players. And, and so, yeah, not a lot of Bielsa there. I didn't get much of a Bielsa fix from it. Okay, well, I, uh, I have not watched
0: that, uh, that coda or whatever that, uh, that is, but I'd like to uh, uh, check that out and see, if, um, see see how good it is. Uh, what I did watch, though, this week was a couple of documentaries. One of them, just a, a straight hour and a half type of documentary, another one that has four parts. Uh, the, one, the one with four parts is called Challenger, the Final Flight, which is on Netflix. Uh, it is about the, uh, the space shuttle uh, Challenger disaster, which happened uh, on January 28th uh, 1986, uh, in the late morning. And I would have been 15 at that point. And it's one of those things where I remember exactly where I was, uh, when I found out about it, I walked right into the bookstore at my, uh, at my high school and there it was, uh, on the television and everything kind of stood still. So it is, it is one of those seminal type of moments, especially for kids from the seventies and eighties. Uh, that grew up and were growing up uh, at that time. It's four parts. It goes through. uh, It it doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot new, but it was interesting to kind of go back and relive uh, that because it was such a huge part of, like I said, growing up and the mistakes that were made. But also it kind of reaffirmed part of the space program that sometimes people don't want to talk about. And that is that there is inherent danger in everything uh, that is done because you are pushing the envelope and you are doing things that have never been done before. And the acceptance of the astronauts, whether they are astronauts or whether they are guests, whether they are highly trained or not trained, understanding that doing these things that have never been done before come with uh, come with that risk. And some pay Uh, the ultimate uh, price. I should say also that I I was, uh, I was looking today and uh, someone pointed out to me that we are recording here on September 29th. In 1998, two years after the Challenger disaster, the first space shuttle mission after the disaster uh, took off and uh, was uh, successful on September 29th, 1988. So today is actually a a day in, uh, in, in NASA history. So that was one of the documents and I do recommend it. It's four, it's four parts. It's not, you can binge it very, very easily. The next one uh, that I watched, uh, you know, I'm a huge music doc fan, Mossy. So any type of music doc out there, I will eat up. So there's one on Amazon about Gordon Lightfoot. Mossy, do you know who Gordon Lightfoot is?
1: Uh, I do not.
0: All right. So Gordon Lightfoot is a, and I will say it, he is a, a legend in the music industry, um, a Canadian, uh, who had crossover success. He, was, uh, he is a legend in Canada, less so maybe around the world, but he did have overall uh, international success, including uh, some very, very big hits uh, and becoming very, very popular in the US. And he, he lived a fascinating life. He is a singer-songwriter uh, in every sense of the, uh, of the words as a singer songwriter in that he wrote everything and not only did he write everything uh but many many people covered his songs he actually probably made a whole lot more money in other people covering his songs and he was a hellraiser um but to see how he was able to break through and maybe it's it's in this time where we are watching where we don't have live music which is so important to me and and Many of you listening, uh, you know concerts and clubs and all that, all that kind of stuff. Live music, it just maybe it made that documentary that much more special to see him and how he performed live and what he did and how he wrote his songs, and how he, like all great and legendary artists, felt. This is who I am, and I'm not going to change for anyone, regardless of what the times say, regardless of what the era that we're living in, regardless of uh, what managers or anybody else say, he, he believed and knew this is what makes me good. This is what I am good at. And he did it. And he said it will find an audience. And ultimately it did. And his ability to turn phrases and to tell stories uh, and to evoke emotions uh, is, is amazing. So if you want somebody to go and, 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 and listen to, maybe that you haven't heard of, or you certainly haven't heard a lot of, Gordon Lightfoot uh, is one of those. And, you know, he gets kind of a bad rap at time of, of just being kind of soft yacht rockish type of music. And he's so much more than that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I love I love uh, I love that. But um, and he came about before the whole age of MTV. And so, you know, he was in a certain way hurt a little bit by uh, by that. But uh, a fascinating documentary about a fascinating uh, and legendary type of musician there. So those are my two recommendations uh, for this week. All right, Mossy, anything else uh, before we light this candle?
1: That's
0: it. All right, let's, uh, let's light it and let's dive right into what's going on over in Europe and all of the, uh, the, uh, the different things. We will talk about the VAR situation, which has dominated the headlines um, a little later in the show. So we'll, we'll save that for later, but there's still so much more uh, that has gone on when it comes to uh, Europe in particular, uh, including uh, a lot of American uh, connections. Zach Steffen, who some believe is the starting goalkeeper for the U.S. men's national team. Others believe he is not quite there yet. He has had a an interesting European experience over the last few years, but ultimately he is a member of Manchester City, one of the great clubs in the world. He's not necessarily, no, he's not the starting goalkeeper for Man, Man City, but he is the backup or one of the backups. And as such, uh, in big clubs like this, he gets opportunities when it comes to the, uh, the tournaments that they play and the, and the lower level type of, uh, of games, which is, look, if you're on the field with Man, Man City, playing for Man City, that's a good thing. So we saw him for the first time playing for Man City, in, uh, what's the cup
1: called, Mossy, that uh, he was playing in? Uh, he played in the League Cup against Bournemouth.
0: Okay, League League Cup against uh, Bournemouth. I, uh, and, and, you know, he they won the game. As But, by the way, if you're a, a Man City goalkeeper, um, and we'll talk about what happened in the EPL, but for the most part, you're not going to get a lot of action. And it doesn't mean that you're not of value, because sometimes goalkeepers that don't get a lot of action Um, are incredibly valuable for being able to mentally stay in the game and make that maybe even just one save that is needed to be made to keep their, uh, their team in the game. Not if they're just, you know, killing the other team, but the amount of possession oftentimes that Man City has is such that uh, you are not asked to make the saves. What you are asked to do though is play out of the back on a consistent basis and to be almost that sweeper keeper type of, uh, uh, of goalkeeper, which is one of the reasons why Zach, Zach Steffen is, uh, I think, valued not just by Man City, but also by Greg Berhalter and the U.S. men's national team. The problem is the amount of games that he is going to play. You know, I often say that form is fallacy, and I, and I truly believe that. Uh, not always, but, uh, but there are certain times where, where that, is, that is true. But that's in the context of people that are playing and maybe playing poorly and that not necessarily translating to the national team, or playing really, really well, and that not necessarily. But in both of those instances, the players are playing, and they are playing consistently. Not playing, or playing very, very minimally, uh, that, that, for a goalkeeper or for any player, can be problematic. Mossy, right now, I guess the question is, from a U.S. perspective, is this is, good, this is a good thing for Zach Steffen, but is it enough for you or anybody else to say that he is the number one? for the U.S. men's national team.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's so much excitement over all these Americans suddenly being at top European clubs. And Stefan gets thrown onto that list because it makes the list uh, even more impressive with Manchester City. But he seems to be the one where it's polarizing. I mean, we all think it's a good thing for McKennie to be at Juventus and for Pulisic to be at Chelsea and Gio Reyna starting games for Dortmund, et cetera. And then when you get to Stefan, it's like, well, I don't know if this is actually such a good thing that he's on a club like Manchester City for the reasons that you outlined. And, and listen, I happen to think Ederson... Has become sneaky overrated, so I'll, I'll I'll put that out there right now. But it, it's still hard to see Stefan supplanting him, given the fact that Ederson's been the starter for the past three seasons. They've won so much with him. He did lead the Premier League in, in clean sheets last season. And he's still generally considered one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Although, like I say, I think that reputation is a bit outdated. So I think we have to presume that this it's, this is going to be what, what Stefan going to have to content himself with, the odd cup game here and there. The good news is City do tend to go far in these domestic cup competitions. But still, you're talking about. One or two games a month over the course of the season. So yeah, it, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think playing for Pep, he will improve with his feet, and so Greg Berhalter will like that. Uh, but there is this question about him being able to stay sharp. You know, there's this Stu Holden school of thought that uh, this should um, uh, discard him from being the starter for the U.S. The, the U.S. has to have a starting goalkeeper that's playing regularly for his club, and so uh, that Burhalter is going to have to look at other options. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you're not quite there. You're not sort of. You want to see kind of how this situation unfolds.
0: I do want to see how it unfolds. What, what will be interesting is, and the balance and the decision that ultimately Greg Burhalter is faced with is, I don't think that there's anybody that's better with their feet than Zach Stefan, even now, even with the limited play. Uh, and that's part of the reason why he has he is, well, why he has flourished under Greg Berhalter and continues to be a favorite under Greg Burhalter. because as we know, Greg Berhalter, whether it was for club and now for country, he has tried to implement a much more possession-oriented type of style, playing out of the back, and adherence to keeping the ball in possession and playing out of the back, even in risky types of situations. You know, and and for a lot of people, this is what the evolved game is now. So you need a goalkeeper who is comfortable doing that. And I don't think, uh, you know, someone like Brad Guzan, uh, for example, is as comfortable as Zack Steffen. The problem is when you're playing against small clubs or small uh, nations from a national team, and you're going to have most of the ball, that's that's all fine and well. But this is about measuring us against the elite. And if we aren't playing out of the back or can't play out of the back, and probably more importantly, if we are facing lots of uh, dangerous situations and shots, you need a shot stopper. So ideally, you want someone who's great with their feet playing out of the back. And also saves the ball, which is the, the most important thing for any goalkeeper, right? And the problem right now is we are—if we could create this Frankenstein type of situation where we're taking parts of different players, uh, then we would have that perfect goalkeeper. We don't have that per- perfect goalkeeper right now. So Greg Berhalter is going to have to decide what is more important: Are you going to give up the fact that he is not as good as a shot stopper as others? And that trade-off is that when you're playing out of the back, which may be more important to you, that's what you're going to go with. Or are you going to be more pragmatic and say, you know what? This goalkeeper is not as good at playing out of the back, and so we're going to lose that part of our evolution, but we're going to trade it for the fact that when we are playing against the elites and we are under pressure, I need somebody that's going to save the ball. I, I, I don't have the answer yet, and maybe that will come to fruition over the next couple of years when we figure this all out, but that's the rub right now. And that's the problem for a Greg Burhalter is trying to find a goalkeeper that has both of those qualities and satisfies both of those, uh, both of those things going forward because Zach Steffen doesn't do it. And I'll be honest, I don't think there's a goalkeeper yet that has risen above the fray to say, I can do both of those things on a consistent basis um all right what else uh mossy anything else to say about uh well i mean man city then followed it up with a loss in the uh, in the epl so it's not as if they're infallible it's not like you, to your point it's not as if there may be opportunities i still don't see zach Steffen getting put in put in goal anytime soon for the i guess the first team if you if you want to if you want to call it or being the, the first string uh goalkeeper right now but you know there's uh are, are there is there are there problems right now when it comes to man city
1: Well, to be fair, uh, they conceded five goals and a 5-2 loss to Leicester, but I don't think any of them were Ederson's fault. Uh, Three of them were on penalties. One was this incredible strike by Madison upper corner, and then the other was a really nifty finish by Vardy from close range. Vardy had a hat trick in this game. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I mean, Ederson gave up five goals. If you're a U.S. fan, you you like to see that, but I I don't think this is the sort of game that's going to cause Ederson to lose his job. Um, Yeah, I mean, listen – uh, my my big picture take on the Premier League, you see City lose 5-2 to Leicester, uh, Chelsea, which we'll talk about in a, in a second. They, they have a wild one against West Brom, but they drop points there. Uh, and then Liverpool go out and take care of business against Arsenal. And I just think, you know, Liverpool last season, they finished 18 points above City, 33 points above United and Chelsea. And for a league that prides itself on competitiveness, uh, folks weren't entirely comfortable with that. So going into the season, they, we expended a lot of energy trying to talk ourselves into why Liverpool weren't going to be that good and why the Uniteds and Chelseas and Arsenals were going to be much better than they were last season. And it was going to make for a uh, much greater competition at the top. And three rounds in, I'm already questioning whether, you know, you take a step back and you think, well... Liverpool didn't really lose anybody of of consequence from last season. They've added Thiago. And unlike with Pep, where you start to get to year four or five and you get a real sense that players are tiring of him, I don't get any sense of that with Klopp. Everybody still loves him. There's still a real harmonious feel with that squad. So, you know, Liverpool, three wins out of three. They've already beaten Chelsea and Arsenal somewhat authoritatively. And you start to wonder, is this season going to be any different? Is there any reason to really think that that it is going to be different other than sort of wishful thinking on our part? Uh, I mean, can you make a case for somebody other than Liverpool winning the league this season? Only because it's
0: Only because it's a new season. And what we've <laughs> seen so far, you know, still a small sample size and things can change. But the fact that Liverpool, like you said, it's not like they well, they spent money, but they didn't spend the way others did. They certainly didn't blow anything up, not that they should have. And so, you know, they, they tweaked here or there. And as you said, you know, with, with regards to the coach, where there are times where it gets old, it gets stale, you don't get any sense that that has happened yet. I'm not saying it, it won't. Um, I, guess, I guess my question to you and to others would be, if you had to put uh, a time limit on Klopp at Liverpool, even what we've seen the last couple of games. I mean, is it is this a 10-year a type of thing that you're talking about? Which w- which in today's world is a complete rarity. We don't see the Sir Alex's type of existence anymore. But I guess if you're going to put somebody much more than a Pepper or certainly Mourinho or anybody else, Klopp would be the, the the odds-on favorite to have that type of existence. But do you see that happening? Or does maybe he get bored with the situation?
1: Well, he he was a coach at... Mines for seven years and then Dortmund for seven years so that seems to be about uh so yeah I could see a couple of years from now like you said maybe him deciding that it's time to do something else whether it's the German national team or whatnot so yeah I think you're looking at about a seven eight year uh stint likely with Klopp at Liverpool. Okay uh how
0: long is the stint going to be for Frank Lampard at Chelsea? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean uh I mean I'm, I'm being a little uh a little flip there but it, it, it has yet to come together and talk about spending money and certainly spending uh, lots of money. It was, they got a point this, uh, this past game, but it, it's still not the, the massive change that I think a lot of folks were expecting when it comes to Chelsea. And and look, it might, it's going to take some time. It's not as easy as, as plugging in what we all know are great players and obviously very expensive players and just having it automatically happen. But I, I think that, I, I I think it's fair to say that we were expecting a little bit more, even though it's early days
1: spe- expecting a little bit more. Is that, is that unfair? No, that's fair. I, I will give them credit though. They showed great fight back to come from three nil down to earn a point. Uh, so absolutely give them credit for that. A couple of things I'll say about Chelsea uh, you know, the mistake that Thiago Silva made in the first half is a mistake that could happen in any game in any league. It was a simple pass. He wasn't under any pressure and he just miscontrol miscontrolled that he let the ball go under his foot and it went into the path of a West Brom player and of course it turns into oh it's him not adapting to the premier league and you can get away with that in league one but not in the premier league i mean which th- that that kind of mistake has nothing to do with anything but they they're just waiting for an excuse to to trot out that narrative, uh, which was kind of funny. But the other thing that's worth mentioning is the three goals in the second half were scored by Mount hudson Adoy and Tammy Abraham. And, and I've talked about how it, it's a somewhat odd dynamic where you had all these young English players that got a lot of playing time last season and there was such a feel-good factor with Chelsea last season. And, and I think all those players showed enough to expect to have a big role this season. And then all of a sudden, are they going to get usurped by the big signings? And you spend all this money on Werner and Havertz and Ziyech, and you figure it's going to be all about them. And so it's an interesting mix that Lampard has to kind of manage there. But this was a day where, again, a lot of English pundits really wanted to point out, you see, don't forget about these young English guys, too. They're going to be very important because, I mean, they were. They, they, they counted for all three of the goals.
0: Let's be honest. All right. Chelsea's season really doesn't start until Christian Pulisic is back. Okay. And uh, he's going to be the savior. He's going to come back in and provide that type of stability and that type of attack that they, that they need. It's not that they don't have great attacking high price types of players, but it's Christian Pulisic's team at this point.
1: I mean, you're saying that somewhat facetiously, but there's some truth to it. I mean, he was at the end of last season, he was clearly their best player. And if he can stay healthy and play for an extended stretch, the way he played towards the end of the last season then yeah he's an absolute difference maker and getting him on the field could change this whole situation around and
0: and you you are able to uh, construct an aura and a value oftentimes by timing and association and all that and look i don't want anybody to be hurt and certainly christian's had unfortunately a long history of injuries but if there ever was maybe a time to be out and a benefiting from a time to be out this is this is it because you can come back and you can come back and be that that hero uh and be part of at least the perceived change of that team and the real change when it comes to the actual results. So we'll see if, and when uh, Christian Pulisic uh, gets back, let's finish up the EPL here. Um, We mentioned uh, Bielsa in the, uh, in the open. So leads are for real, right? Right. Yes. No. Is it a question? Should, I mean, it's, it's fun to watch
1: so far. So good. A very encouraging start to life for them. Uh, and also another win for Everton, who three wins out of three for them. And I know everybody's already excited about the Merseyside Derby. That's a rivalry that's been kind of dormant uh, for the last couple of decades. But uh, there's some real juice around that that game this season because Everton looked like they might be for real with James leading the way.
0: And uh, just, uh, we'll finish up. Jack Harrison also, he's setting up the game winner for Leeds. Uh, we always talk about people that have some sort of connection, not some sort of connection, great connection, took the road less traveled going through the United States, through college, and then through Major League Soccer, and now uh, doing it for Leeds in the uh, in the Premier League. So uh, congratulations uh, to him. As I said before, uh, the VAR talk will happen uh, later on in the, uh, in the pod. So we're going to stay off of that. Uh, shall we shift over to uh, Italy? How about that, uh, Weston McKinney? continues on in terms of a starting spot for Juventus. Uh, while, while it wasn't a great game um, that he started uh, was, was, was wonderful for him, he did not have a particularly good game, but the whole team did not have a, a particularly good game. Uh, it was reflected in the, uh, uh, in the ratings that the press gives, and it was kind of a, uh, probably a good kick in the ass uh, for him and a healthy dose of reality it was good that it didn't just come at him specifically. It was kind of spread around that everybody had an off game, although Cristiano scores uh, two goals. And even if you can have a, a bad uh, performance, they played in Rome against Roma uh, and still come out with a point. That's a good thing. And that's what championship uh, teams do. But I think that any belief that had been fostered the week before against Sampdoria, that it was going to be easy like that. Uh, I think it was made very, very clear. And and, and sometimes, you, you need that because Western McKinney's never played in, in Syria and he doesn't know what the reality is, especially playing for Juventus. And this was I think this was an important uh, an important moment for him um, to be reminded that uh, that he can't even for a second let down. He can't for a second let down relative to Juventus and them continuing to get points, but also him individually, because there's going to be plenty of people that are going to be coming at him and looking for that moment. Uh, And whether it's a just bad, uh, bad play type of moment that puts him on the bench, or if he gets Wally pipped or anything like that, he can't afford because there is so much competition uh, in that team. And, you know, he's, he's still an American. And while he had a good first week, uh, there will be people now looking at him saying is this really what this player is all about when he gets up against better competition
1: yeah on the wally pip front uh the, the only concerning thing about mckinney is that the player who came on for him artur played well the last 30 minutes the team got better and i read a lot of articles uh in the gazetta dello sport after this game with people now clamoring for artur to start so uh we'll see I, I don't like to take the temperature of a team after every game take the temperature of a player after every game i, I suppose it's unavoidable early in the season but let's let McKinney play 10, 15 games. There'll be some good, some bad, but we'll have more of a sample to sort of be able to say on balance that this is going this way or that way. So, uh, but yeah, I guess, you know, after the, all the excitement, I, frankly, that was kind of the theme for Americans uh, this weekend in general, we'll get to Gio Reyna in a second, but last weekend, it just the stars aligned. Everything was so perfect. Everything went great. And then this weekend was a little bit of a comeback down to earth <laughs> feeling for all of them. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, my, my, My big picture take on Italy is is this. We, We talked last week about how Bundesliga and Serie A are kind of going through similar deals here where Bayern's won it eight seasons in a row. Juventus has won it nine seasons in a row. And if you're a neutral, you're concerned by that. And you kind of want to see somebody else win it. And you go into each season now trying to talk yourself into whether somebody can challenge the big, bad team. And Inter finished... Uh, one point above Juventus last season. Now, it was a little misleading. It was a little bit like a basketball team that's down by 10 with a minute left and hits a couple threes to dress up the score. Uh, once Juve knew they were going to win the title, they switched off while well, Inter ripped off a bunch of victories at the end to make it look closer than it was between those two teams. But nonetheless... Um, uh, folks in Italy have really putting a lot of stock in Inter as finally being the team that can knock Juventus off their throne in Antonio Conte's second season. They've added guys like Hakimi and Vidal while they're, they held on to Lautaro Martinez. And people feel like there's some question marks around Juventus because they have a, a rookie coach and Andrea Pirlo. And so I'm going to be watching Serie A early on through that lens uh, and so here Juventus dropped points in their second game while Inter played their first match of the season. Absolutely wild one against Fiorentina. They do win 4-3. Uh, Ribery, by the way, was sensational for Fiorentina at 37 years of age. That guy is still uh, doing amazing things. But Inter do rally. They were down 3-2 late. They scored twice. They, they, they pick up the victory. Both Lautaro and Lukaku scored. So an exciting start to the season for Inter. And let's see how this unfolds and whether Inter can, in fact, do what you know we've been sort of pining for Dortmund to do with Bayern and they haven't really been able to do it but let's see if Inter can be that team to to really make a major challenge and perhaps finally dethrone Juventus in Syria.
0: All right. We'll finish off uh, Syria. Sending our, our best wishes to uh, the legend that is Zlatan. Uh, he did confirm that uh, that uh, he was positive for uh, Corona. So hopefully a quick uh, and uh, easy return to health for him. A man just keeps on scoring and obviously makes any team that he plays for uh, better. So we hope that uh, that he stays uh, healthy and returns uh, returns to the uh, the field. Uh, Masi. Uh, so the continued stripping of Barcelona happens. Uh, we finally, for the first, not finally, but, but for the first time in many, many years, we see a Barcelona take the field uh, without Luis Suarez. A little little, little strange, but uh, what must Messi be thinking <laughs> at, at, uh, at this time with both Barcelona and I guess what what Suarez I mean he had he had left the ground the previous week when this deal finally came through in in tears and you know he mentioned that that's that's to be that's to be expected uh and didn't miss a beat as he uh as he moved on over to uh, uh Atleti but first off uh Messi and uh and Barcelona your thoughts
1: well can we can we flip it around and do it in the order that the games occurred because the Atletico game was sure. first and I think that's significant so you know, listen, in the aftermath of that debacle against Bayern and the Champions League, there was a sense of Barcelona that we have to rebuild and we have to get rid of some of these aging players. So they got rid of Rakitic, they got rid of Arturo Vidal, and they get rid of Luis Suarez. He kind of got swept up and all that. And it's not that ridiculous for Barcelona to feel like it was time to move on from a 33-year-old Luis Suarez who was earning a gargantuan salary. But um, I still feel like he has a lot left in the tank, is still a big-time player. And that got kind of lost here in, in the way they were sort of discarding him. And some people were talking about Luis Suarez like he's a spent force. And I couldn't believe, frankly, reading the Italian media when uh, the, the Suarez, the whole Juventus thing ended up being a moot point because he couldn't get a passport in time. And, and by the way, he might've cheated on the exam. <laughs> that, that's a whole other conversation. But, uh, but at, at one point when it looked like they, they might be able to get him, and it was essentially going to come down to a choice between Suarez and Dzeko and Morata, I mean, the fact that the Italian media was actually treating it like it was a choice, which to me, Luis Suarez is a completely different level of player than Eden Jacko or Alvaro Morata. And to me, he was the guy to get if they could have gotten him. And instead, he ends up falling in Atlético Madrid's lap. And yeah, I mean, just an incredible debut. He comes on in the, in the second half and 25 minutes gets two goals, plus a lovely assist to Llorente and... I mean, he is just going to add such a different dimension to that club. I mean, talk about a perfect marriage between a striker and a manager and Luis Suarez and Diego Simeone. I've actually likened Atlético Madrid in the past. I've said they're kind of the Uruguay of club football. And I, I and I, I think it, it's, it's kind of poetic justice that Luis Suarez ends up there. And, you know, João Felix looked great. I mean, here's an Atlético team that even against opponents like Granada it's usually they have to grind out a 1-0 2-0 and here they are winning 6-1 and they even missed a penalty Saúl in the first half it should have been 7-1 so you know it's one game we don't want to get too carried away but for you know th- this this might be just what the doctor ordered for Atletico Madrid we know they're going to defend well we know they're going to be rugged and tough and difficult to break down but now to have a guy like Luis Suarez at the other end i mean it's 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 exciting for sure it does boggle the mind, though.
0: In a, in a moment when Barcelona has done so much publicly wrong uh, and, and from an optics perspective has just looked bad, th- this this seems like another one. And I know Barcelona doesn't put themselves on the same level. They look at themselves at a completely different level, and they are. But this, that's not a good look, Mas. <laughs> I don't think it's a good look. And, and you're just compounding... The, the and, and reinforcing the, the uh, perception out there that you don't know what you're doing, that it's complete shambles. And at a time when I think you need to be doing absolutely everything in your power to rehabilitate uh, your, your image, not just for the outside, by the way, even for, even for Messi. If Messi is going to have any chance of continuing on, obviously changes have to be made. And you have to be looking a whole lot better now. Now maybe this is, as you said, the the moment and the reset and the rebuild that they that they needed to do. And there's certainly a, a fair argument uh, for that. But in the process, you know, try to try to do some things that at least make you look like you're 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 competent. And who knows? Maybe this this will ultimately end up. Uh, I mean, fine. Let's,
1: let's say they hadn't uh, made such a big fuss about the fact that they were kicking Suarez out the door and, and in doing so like took away any leverage they would have had in the negotiation negotiation let's say they handled this a little bit more coyly do you think there's a premier league team that would have spent 20 30 million euros on Luis Suarez oh yeah I think so yeah yeah I mean, absolutely I think he would end up giving him it, it's from strange, one it, of their it's strange
0: yeah I mean i look at him as a commodity i look at him as an incredibly valuable commodity out there on the on the open market i think there's a lot of people that would have come calling for Luis suarez and i don't know i mean look we don't know behind the scenes what ultimately ended happening but if this is what you what you decided on this is what (laughs) this is the decision made it just it seems very very strange
1: but But, but anyway i mean in, in fairness to barcelona so earlier in the day Uh, Suarez does what he did for Atletico. Rakitic scores for Sevilla. And it's all set up for Barcelona to come out of this weekend with egg on their face. Everybody's looking to have a go at them anyway, but uh, it it doesn't happen that way. Why? Because of, uh, I have two words for you, Ansu Fati. And this is the kid that could change this whole narrative around at Barcelona and re-energize this whole club. They have a really, really, really special talent on their hands. What does he do? He comes out against in their La Liga debut against Villarreal, scores two beautiful goals in the first 20 minutes, and then earns a penalty, which Messi converts, throwing an own goal. It's 4-0 at the half. Suddenly, Messi smiling. Everybody seems happy. And amidst all the doom and gloom at Barcelona, actually a very, very impressive La Liga debut for them, 4-0 over Villarreal, which now has people... Everybody's rethinking. Is this going to be such a disaster here? I mean, there's still a lot of talent on this team. Coutinho played very well. Uh, he seems to be. You know, Cumin is high on him, and he's playing him in a position where that he likes. And and Koeman and Coutinho seems somewhat reborn here. And so all of a sudden, I mean, what, what do you make of this? Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be disaster.
0: That's not. That's really not what I'm saying. I'm much more concerned about the the image and look results ultimately are are go a long way in creating that image and 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 once again all of this comes back to to messi if you just believe that it's a fait accompli that he's he's leaving at the end of the uh, of this season then then fine do do what you will but if you are actually concerned of creating a situation that he is excited about and he is positive about then i think you have to make different types of decisions now as you mentioned this might be all part of the plan and come the end of next uh, of this season with what they have done and what they could possibly do and whether it's Fatih or anybody else uh, that they have right uh, have right there that's all final well but that remains to be seen if that's going to happen but like you said i mean he is an incredibly t- i mean the goal that he scored the near post the you know with the, the inside of his foot uh, i mean an incredible talent and and wonderful maybe that maybe he is the future uh, and maybe messi says I kind of want to stick around with this uh, with this future.
1: There, there's a little bit of a messy Ronaldinho dynamic there, where you have uh, one guy towards the tail end while the, the next guy is arriving. And you know, they Ronaldinho and Messi overlapped for a couple of years, and it was kind of fascinating to watch that dynamic. And I, I know it's early, but I, I'm 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 kind of sensing a similar thing with Ansu Fati, and I, I wonder if Messi is going to really embrace that and take this kid under his wing and be something of a mentor to him. Because I mean, to me, this is the next guy. I mean, I think he's that special. He's got a sort of a Neymar-esque swagger about him, and I, I really think he could develop into something truly, truly special there.
0: All right, let's uh, move over to uh, the Bundesliga, where we thought it was just speaking of fait accompli, that Bayern was just going to roll and everything, and yet in uh, you know both for Dortmund and for Bayern. Uh, they both come out and they find a way to lose. So, is there is there more excitement than we thought there was going to be, Mossy, when it comes to the Bundesliga, or is this just an anomaly? Uh,
1: no. Listen, uh, we I last week I tried to make a case for Dortmund. I said they were they were sneaky loaded, and while everybody's giving it to Bayern, if I said I actually said well, under this exact phrase, if Dortmund can avoid doing stupid Dortmund things. I, they might be able to challenge Bayern this season. And what do they do? The second round of the season, they go out and lay an egg and lose to Augsburg. And yes, I know the blow is softened somewhat by the fact that Bayern then went out and got drilled by Hoffenheim on the same weekend. But to me, those two things don't cancel out. Bayern, uh, it's, it's defensible. They had played uh three days earlier this intense 120 minutes against Sevilla plus it's Bayern they've won a gazillion games in the row. they were due to have a bad day and so you don't read anything into it beyond that but with Dortmund you do read into it more than that because they've had a habit of losing games like this over the years it's what's hindered them from challenging Bayern and and you go into the scene telling yourself okay you can't afford to do things like this and then they go out and do it again so to me a, a lot of the air has gone out of the balloon already in round two here as far as Dortmund Wow, Mossy
0: is down on Dortmund. So you, but you're saying that the result from Dortmund is much more uh, illustrates much more about the problem that Dortmund has and has had in the past, and it's rearing its ugly head again, as opposed to uh, as to Bayern Munich. Yeah, I
1: I said defensible, I meant justifiable, you know, Bayern. like I said, when you've won a gazillion games in a row, you can afford to lose one. Plus, like I said, they were just coming off playing an intense 120 minutes against Sevilla. This was a really tricky turnaround for them. And I I don't know what Dortmund's excuse is. I mean, to go, I mean, this early in the season and lose a game like this.
0: All right. Uh, And finishing off with the Bundesliga here, pour one out for uh, our friend, David Wagner, uh, over there at Schalke and Weston, you got out. (laughs) Well, you got out just in time. Although this should not be a surprise to anybody, with the way that Schalke uh, certainly has uh, went last season and continues to go, uh, to continues to go this season.
1: Yeah, winless in his last 18 Bundesliga games, but it it is an amazing turn of events because you might recall they had a terrific first half of last season to the point where when we got to the winter break, we were doing segments at at Fox talking about like mid-season coach of the year. And he was very much in that conversation. In fact, I looked it up. They played, they took the field against Bayern uh, for a game in late January. Like I said, they had a very good first half of the season. Then the winter break hit. Then their first game out of the winter break, they beat Gladbach 2-0. And then the following week they faced Bayern. It was like January 20-something, 2020 and they took the field that day just three points behind Bayern and just a few points off the top of the table and Bayern beat them five nil that day and they've never recovered They've win like I said that was the start of this 18 match winless run in the Bundesliga And now he gets fired so it's amazing to think that <laughs> there was a time not too long ago where Schalke and Bayern took the field with like very similar places on the table and how you know the different directions <laughs> those teams have gone since then well i mean it was untenable
0: at this point and so it that like i said it should come as no surprise uh, so you know they make a change schalke you know we 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 covered the bundesliga for a number of years and i was introduced to what schalke is and i mean just the the immense size of the club that it is it lends itself to much higher expectations and much higher ambitions than it has been able to produce uh, of late. It's almost got that, uh, that Newcastle type of feel where it is a, it is a storied club, incredible support. I mean, the numbers are just ridiculous. And yet in the modern age of what both the game has become and what these leagues have become, there's a reticence to, to compete or obviously to, to spend at the levels of, uh, of others. And so you worry about are you going to erode that fan base that has been built up? And I think in both cases, whether it's Newcastle or Schalke, there will be angst and anger and screaming and yelling, but I don't get the feeling that that fan base is going anywhere, but I think they will continue to just wait for the return to glory days. But I don't know. I don't know if that is ever, if that is ever coming back, um, regardless of who they hire right, uh, hire right now um, with what the, with what they had at their disposal and what what the actions that they have taken, the selling of players, all, all of that kind of stuff. But it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see if uh, anytime soon, either of those teams for that matter, uh, return to the lofty heights uh, that they once occupied. All right, Mossy. anything else in terms of our European roundup? That's it. All right. We're going to take a real quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to look a little bit at the, uh, the transfer window, which is rapidly closing. Somebody better have a seat when that music stops. Uh, don't go away. We we'll go up uh, here in a second. Moving on. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to look real quickly at the last chance transfers that are happening. For those that don't know, the window closes on Monday, October fifth, so it's right around the corner. And we'll. We'll talk in a future episode about the winners and the losers when it comes to the transfer window, because there, there always are. Sometimes they're apparent, sometimes uh, they're not. Mossy, anything that uh, sticks out to you right now, either that has happened or uh, potentially is going to happen, because the rumors continue to fly around when it comes to all sorts of uh, players out there, including American players, uh, we hear that uh, Serginho Dest, Finally, looks like the deal to Barcelona is done, which means that Bayern Munich were not able to do it. Uh, not too shabby when you're choosing between Barcelona or uh, Bayern Munich. Uh, and we'll talk about some other uh, potential ones out there. But anything uh, tickling your fancy here?
1: Well, why don't we start on the American front? Uh, first off, I mean, Sergio Des essentially had a choice between Barcelona and Bayern. He seems to have chosen Barcelona. Uh, what do you make of that? I guess in a strange way,
0: I mean, that's not a strange way because Bayern Munich is, at this point right now, arguably the best team in the world. OK, so does he have a better chance? I can't believe we're saying this, but does he have a better chance of playing at Bayern Munich uh, or at Barcelona? Now, we just finished talking about how Barcelona is kind of going through this metamorphosis and on you know, Fati type of thing or or a real desire to, I guess, make the changes and in doing so get younger I think he's got a better chance of playing right now at Barcelona with what they're going through, as opposed to a kind of more set team when it comes to Bayern Munich. Am I wrong?
1: No, I think you're right. And remember, uh, Barcelona now have a Dutch coach in Ronald Koeman, uh, who we know Dutch coaches are always a bit partial to Dutch players. I mean, Virginia that we know is a U.S. international, but I'm sure Koeman kind of looks at him as you know uh, partly Dutch. So, uh, so yeah, I think. Uh, it Probably it, this is the slightly better choice from from strictly in terms of playing time. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that.
0: And look, it remains to be seen how much I think Bayern did want him, but ultimately you know, Barcelona still has the cachet uh, over over Bayern Munich. Maybe not for everybody, but it's still it's still there. They haven't completely <laughs> lost uh, lost any of that. So I, I can understand why the attraction for a number of reasons that we just talked about, and that it is still uh, uh, st- is still Barcelona. Are, are Bayern Munich miffed that this didn't happen? Eh, maybe, but they're still Bayern Munich.
1: Let, let's switch gears to another American, Brendan Aronson, who it sounds like is on his way to Salzburg to play for Jesse Marsh. Interesting, I mean, this is probably a larger conversation for another day, but um, the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive Uh, to a young American leaving MLS to go to Europe. And I just just wonder, you know, there's a difference between being a great talent-developing league and a great league. Brazil and Argentina remain the two greatest talent-producing soccer nations on the planet, and yet neither of them have great domestic leagues. The same people who deride uh, Ligue 1 as being a farmer's league, recognize it's a great talent-producing league. Where do all these French players come from that won the World Cup? But they don't stay. The majority of the French players in the, in the World Cup squad played somewhere else. So again, Liga, great talent-producing league, but not necessarily a great league. And I, I think the overriding question that MLS is going to have to ask itself over the next five, 10, 20 years is, is the goal to be a great talent producing league or is it still to be a great league period? Is the target still the Premier League? Is the idea to somehow someday have the best league in the world with the best players in the world in their prime playing there? Or is there now sort of an acceptance that the landscape of the sport is what it is and MLS just needs to focus on on producing a lot of good good talent and understanding that if they're really good, they're probably gonna go play for the Real Madrid's and Barcelona's. And if the US has a really good national team built around those players, uh then MLS has kind of done its part and in the meantime you just try to have as good a league as you possibly can but sort of working within this framework of understanding that you're not probably going to be able to ever rival the Premier League and La League in terms of talent and prestige because the best players in the world in their primes are invariably going to go there I mean what I'm probably attaching a lot to this Brandon Aronson Salzburg but it just got me thinking about these big picture questions
0: no you're you're 100% right in thinking about this and uh we remember when Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer, said that he wanted to make Major League Soccer a league of choice. Now, there's a lot to unpack when you're talking about something like that. But I I ho- well, first off, I hope that MLS is not capitulating and and kind of throwing in the towel when it comes to the desire to be that league of choice. And inherent in that is that you want to compete with the rest of the world. We all understand the challenges that MLS has Uh, when it comes to competing with the rest of the world and the head start that the rest of the world has. But I do think that there is also um, a value in recognizing that MLS has to be a part of the machine. and has to be a part of the buying and selling machine that exists. And much more so when it comes to the selling part that MLS hasn't been a part of uh, on a consistent basis. Uh, Because even the, the leagues that we don't look at as feeder leagues or developmental type of leagues even the leagues that we look at as the big leagues, they are still part of the generation and the churning and burning of players uh, and the business that is behind that. And MLS, I think, wants to do that. And I think this is a perfect example. Brendan Aronson, a talent? Yes. The greatest talent that America's ever produced? Not by a long shot. Okay? I'm not saying he can't go over and have, uh, have success. But I think, especially for a team like Philadelphia, which has kind of prided itself on being that developmental type of team and that small market type of mindset, you got to be able to do this. And, you know, even if Brendan Brendan Aronson is a $2 million transfer or something like that, that's good because that, you know, that that primes the pump, if you will. Now, you got to have other stuff coming up uh, later on, but I don't think that that type of sale of that type of player automatically signifies that MLS is throwing in the towel in terms of competing with the rest of the, competing the rest of the world. I actually think it shows that there has to be a business part of this strategy that you are constantly being a part of. And it's not about the huge signings. It's about a consistent level of medium to small level, uh, uh, sales, if you will, not just the signing, but I'm talking about the, uh, the actual, the actual sales that he is going to Salzburg, I think is good for the player that he's going to an American coach who will value him who will respect him who will give him an opportunity just in general that that is a uh, that is a team that is a platform for so much talent that comes uh, uh, that comes through so. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's really, really interesting. I will be interested if this type of sale, because it's not going to be for a ridiculous amount of money, if this type of sale becomes more, more commonplace. But you're absolutely uh, right, Mossy, in, in, in looking and maybe being wary of this being the end of something. I don't necessarily see it like that, but I can understand how you could possibly interpret it uh, as that. And MLS, they have to be careful. They have to be careful that they, they don't pigeonhole themselves. And that, they've known that since, uh, since, the, uh, since the beginning. But selling young players does not mean that you can't be a league of choice. Selling young players on a consistent basis doesn't mean that you can't then compete with the rest, uh, with the rest of the world. You just have to pick and, choose, uh, pick and choose your moments and make sure that while you have the outgoing, make sure that you have the incoming also.
1: Well, let's look at a different way. If, if when the dust settles, the U S national team is routinely trotting out lineups where all 11 starters play in Europe. Uh, uh if most of those players came up through MLS academies, would that be enough for, in your eyes for, for MLS people to sort of feel like pride in that or feel connection to that? Or would they be annoyed that there's not any players that are actually playing in MLS at that moment, starting for the national team? Mm. How do you think that's going to, it's,
0: I mean, it's a great question. Um, I mean, we could we could potentially see at this next, uh, next next World Cup and certainly this lead up to the next World Cup, with the amount of players that we have playing uh, overseas. And what that says about MLS, both the good and the bad, you mentioned if they're being developed, then look, the talent is there. Uh, but if they are not matriculating and starring in MLS, is are you saying that the only way for the national you to make the national team or for the national team to be good is to actually be playing over in Europe in the quote unquote better leagues? I think that that is problematic for for major league soccer. And you know, I mean, right now we talk about you know a guy like Jordan Morris uh, who will buy for a starting spot, I think, on the national team, a guy who's never played overseas. I don't think it matters ultimately from a, a, a competitive standpoint where you play, you can be good at the international level, but in this constant need and drive for credibility and relevance, uh, both domestically and around the world, I, I guess that could be, you know, that could be viewed as problematic from an MLS perspective. Ultimately, I don't, and I don't care as long as we are winning. I don't care where you're playing or, uh, um, or, or how it looks, but if it ends up being that we are better as a national team and we do better in world cups, but it's at, to the detriment of the domestic league. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting to see how that uh, ultimately, uh, ultimately plays out. Um, but yeah, I, but, but to, to end end the conversation, I, I don't think that MLS wants, nor do I think that MLS can afford to either be perceived or in actuality be a feeder league um, or just a developmental league. But that doesn't mean that you can't develop talent and develop a lot of talent and show that there is incredible. Look, if, if I was, if I was at a league around the world, I would be mining the hell out of the United States. Okay. I think not only is there talent, but it's cheap. It's much more reliable. And there's an abundance of it out there. If you just spend if you just spend a little bit of time, you spend a lot of time, I think you can do some some really, really good things. Uh, All right, Mussy. other uh, transfers out there. I mean, Jaden Sancho, will he or won't he? Is this happening or not? Can we can we uh, fish or
1: cut bait here? I, listen, if this ends up happening in the next few days, then I'll have egg on my face and I'll admit it next week. But to me, this is the English media trying to keep something alive and treat it like it's an ongoing thing when it's not. Like, it seems like Dortmund made it very clear that the two clubs were miles apart. Dortmund made a decision that there there wasn't going to be any sort of pandemic discount. They were going to hold to their valuation of Jadon Sancho and demand the same amount of money they would have been asking under normal times. And United weren't willing to come even close to that. And Dortmund set a deadline of when they wanted to this situation resolve one way or the other, which is essentially when they started their season. And now they're playing games and United are playing games. And it, I, I don't know, I, I still, if you Google Jaden Sancho's name, a bunch of articles took him up as if this is kind of an ongoing situation. And I don't get the sense that it is, to be honest. So this is like not even on my radar anymore. I think this is not gonna happen this summer. And and this has been punted to next summer. But again, United, I don't know. They, they are of the, of the big six in England. They, to be fair, they do feel like the one team that has some real unfinished business here that wanted to have gotten a lot more done than they have so far in the window. So if anybody is going to do something really noteworthy in the next few days, I think it probably is going to be Manchester United, but I don't see it being Jaden Sancho.
0: Are you, uh, I've, I've forgotten, are you in favor of the window where it is? Or, I mean, cause we're talking about a player who <laughs> both leagues have started, they're playing, they continue to play. And yet this is still hanging over everybody.
1: No, when when we get to the handball discussion, I'm going to deride England for their pension for always wanting to go a different way and not follow the rest of Europe. But this is a rare instance where I think England was right. Remember, they moved their transfer window up to to for it to close before the start of the season, and they were expecting all the other leagues to follow suit, and they didn't, which left the English clubs at a competitive disadvantage because there were several weeks they had several weeks less during the summer to sign players than everybody else, and so they ended up having to go back in that decision, and it's a real shame. I do wish the other leagues in Europe had followed suit because I actually think England was right about that, and I'd much rather see the transfer window close before the start of the season everybody can go into their first game okay for better for worse this is our team and you don't have players that are playing right now but still with their futures up in the air so that's how i feel about it
0: it must be very strange for a player to be playing with that type of future being up in the air i mean just from a a physical standpoint and if this is i mean this could be life-changing not for Jaden sancho i mean he's playing making money but this could this, this this is this could be a big change and you know, do you play him? Don't you play him? Does the player want to play? Even if the player plays, is that player actually thinking? I mean, it's 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 nuts. Uh, anything else from a transfer uh, yeah, a perspective?
1: To me, the name that I'm kind of fascinated to see where he's going to end up is Edinson Cavani because uh, he didn't resign with PSG. He's at one point it looked like he was for sure going to go to Benfica, and then he ended up not coming to a contract agreement with them. He's he's had a, been linked everywhere, had a bunch of different options. Some of it is teams coming after him. Some of it is his agent offering Cavani to different teams. And here we are just a few days before the close of the window, and, and he's he still doesn't have a team. And the intriguing possibility I've seen raised in the last 48 hours is him going to Atletico Madrid. They might get rid of Diego Costa and sign Cavani as a replacement to have Suarez and Cavani playing together. I mentioned that I think Atletico are the Uruguay of, of club football, and that would kind of c- cement that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where Cavani ends up. And, and, and the one deal that did go down that I do want to discuss is this Ruben Diaz. He's a Portuguese center back who left Benfica to go to Manchester City for, uh, it's being reported as in the neighborhood of 70 million euros. Now, to be fair, Otamendi is going the other way and he's been valued at 15 million euros. So again, for bookkeeping purposes, they announced these as two completely separate transfers, even though they're they're essentially linked. Um, but again, you know, this is Pep. I mean, he has now spent it's, I've seen different numbers floating around, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 million euros across that back line. Uh, and it's, it's the, you look at the numbers, it's just crazy what they paid for John stones and Laporte and Nathan Ake this summer already. And now they bring in Ruben Diaz for this amount, the fullbacks, uh, Mendy, Kyle Walker, Cancelo. And and I still feel like it. Ha- he hasn't completely sorted it out. It still feels like we get into the end, tail end of every season. And that still feels like, listen, they've, they've had a lot of success under him. So he's sorted out, to enough of a degree that they've been able to win domestic trebles and smash premier league records so but you know what i mean you still don't feel like it, that that back line is ever completely settled and and when you get to these big champions games at the end of the season it still feels like kind of their achilles heel and it's just amazing how much money he's been throwing around without Being even this guy, I mean, he's good, but it doesn't feel like a sure thing, slam dunk guy that's going to walk in the door and okay, Ruben Diaz and then problem solved. He's going to be this commanding presence in that back. Maybe we'll see, but it still feels like kind of a maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy.
0: Oh, now you're worried about other people's money. It's not your money.
1: (laughs) It's not his money. And 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 it's, it's, it's kind of hilarious with City because they just had this whole financial fair play brouhaha with UEFA. And you know, they, they, were very nearly banned from the Champions League for two seasons. And they got out of it on appeal, on something of a technicality. And you figure maybe they would lay low just for optics sake. And no, there's no shame in their game. They're right back to operating the way they operate and throwing crazy money around. And, you know, oh, I mean, they're it. almost daring uh, way for to come after him again. But I guess they feel like they're pretty invincible at this point. So but still, I mean, just on the field, I mean, let, let's see. I mean, they between Ake and and, and and Ruben Diaz, it's it's well over 100 million euros on defenders. You'd like to think that's going to be solve the problem. But I'm not so sure they with Ake in the lineup, they conceded five to Leicester this weekend. So, again, he Pep keeps spending all this money and we'll see if he gets results out of it.
0: How dare you? How dare you, Mossy? This is Man City. All right. <laughs> Technicality. Oh, my goodness. Wow. All right. Uh, as we said, we uh, we will discuss next week because the window will close. Uh, you know, who had the best window, I guess. And if any of these uh, rumored transfers come to fruition, uh, as you mentioned, Mossy, there are, there are players out there that uh, come this time next week, will be uh, looking for a new place to live um, and probably making a whole lot more money. Uh, and some that Don't have any place right now that will finally uh, have a uh, have a destination. All right. We're going to take another quick break. uh, And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi with that hashtag Ask Alexi. Uh, So don't go away. We'll talk about handballs and Atlanta and Major League Soccer and U.S. Men's National Team, and all sorts of stuff right around the corner here. All right. Moving on. Okay, welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you uh, send us in your Ask Alexi using the hashtag Ask Alexi, your questions, your comments, concerns, and we pick a few of them each week as we did this week. Mossy, what do the folks want to know?
1: First up, I know you're chomping at the bit to discuss this topic. <laughs> at Pistol 815, in the Everton Crystal Palace game, how did the refs not call a handball in the first instance, but call a handball in the second instance? I've never seen a more unclear rule in my life, exclamation point.
0: Okay, exclamation point uh, by Pistol815. It's actually, if you're just specifically looking at this game and in these two situations, it's actually very clear. (laughs) So, um, look, much of the last 48 uh, 72 hours has been spent by um, many in the the soccer, sorry, football world, um, with incredible anger and angst and consternation and irritation and all these different words that we could use over um, VAR and what many perceive as a fundamentally flawed type of law when it comes to the handling law, the handball uh, law that we have. That it, is, that it stems from incidents that happened in the EPL should come as no surprise Unless and until something actually happens in the EPL and uh, it has an impact when it comes to the EPL, it's almost as if it doesn't exist or uh, or hasn't happened. We all know that VAR and um, many of the laws that have been uh, implemented have been implemented and used for now multiple years uh, over many, many leagues uh, out there. But... You know, watching, for example, and we mentioned earlier in the pod about the way that the English game uh, oftentimes is late <laughs> or, or likes to do their own thing. You know, watching the irritation bubble up when VP, VAR was first implemented was warm the cockles of my redheaded heart, as does this, um, to see many, and that's not just, not just the English, but lovers of uh, the EPL try to come to grips and many failing miserably coming to grips with what the handling uh, law is and what a handball is. Once again, warms the cockles uh, of my heart to your, to your question though, pistol 815, uh, why should, why are they different? Well, if you look at the Joel Ward game and the two handballs, if you will, and the two type of uh, different scenarios, one uh his silhouette and the natural silhouette that was the player was judged as not being unnatural. And the other one, with his arms up in the air, even though he wasn't looking at the ball, was judged and deemed as uh, being unnatural. And therefore, that's why the two different calls on, uh, on those moments. Uh, look, I, I look at this as, once again, we can scream and yell about the law all day long. Laws are made or laws are changed in order to modify behavior. Okay. When there was a time when I used to play where I used to just completely crush players in tackles from behind and just annihilate them. And the worst that I would face was a yellow card. Okay. And oftentimes not even that everybody recognized that changes needed to be made for the safety of the players and for the good of the game. And The laws were changed. And the way that those laws were interpreted were changed. And there was a much more strict uh, adherence to the law. And I had to fundamentally change the way that I played the game. The handling law and the handball uh, law uh, right now is such that you know what it is. You understand what the situation is. You might not like it. You may not agree with, with it but no player doesn't understand what's going on right now. Any player that defends in the box right now without putting their arms to the side or behind their back or basically showing everybody, I I understand the risk that I'm taking right now and I am doing everything in my power to mitigate that by, by playing in this type of new situation. Any player that doesn't do that, you are accepting the risk. And I don't understand why players aren't made to adapt and to adjust. In this age of VAR, in this age of technology, we understand that it is down to millimeters. It is down to the fact that we are trying to get the calls right or more of the calls right, but it is still human beings. There is still a subjective nature to many of the calls uh, that we make, but as long as there are human beings uh, doing it, some part of it is uh, is going to be subjective. There, so there are calls now to, why can't we go back to the way it was? I don't think people realize before VAR, before the technology was involved, you know, how much we argued and how much debate there, actu- there actually was. And this has been an attempt to make things clearer. Any law is designed to actually define what the, what the law is and what breaking the law is. And is there a subjective nature to many of the laws that we have? Abs- absolutely. That has, not, that has not gone away. But this whining that we have coming out from the EPL after the weekend by players, by fans, by coaches, look, it might get to the point where they change it. But until you can actually give me what the solution is, it's easy to scream and yell. This was done to make things easier, to make things clearer. Okay? now it might not have had that effect and there might be confusion out there. But until you can actually tell me what the solution
1: is, you're just screaming and yelling. Mossy. First off, it's worth noting this, quote unquote, new handball rule went into effect in all the other leagues last season. And in England, they chose not to enforce it that strictly. And then this season, it was a big point of emphasis that they were going to start to enforce it strictly. And so... What that means, and and again, England always seems to want to go its own separate way on these things. They They did the same thing with VAR. You'll notice England, they're back to three subs. Every other league in Europe kept the five. The Champions League is going to have five. And yet they're doing it, they're, they're back to three. And and it, we can debate who's right, who's wrong, but it's still it's just the, 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 their natural instinct is that we're separate. And look, and insert your own Brexit joke here, but their natural instinct is we're going to go our separate way from the rest of Europe. And then sometimes they end up coming back and eventually conforming to the way everybody else is doing things. But what this means is that everybody else is farther along in getting used to this rule change and adapting to it. And you, I've seen some figures in other leagues where, yes, initially there was a spate of handball penalties. But then the numbers started to go down again, because as you mentioned, defenders started to adjust and understand what was going to be called and what wasn't. And and, and also just fans just got used to certain calls being made. And so they don't scream about it anymore. In the Roma Juventus game this weekend, there were two handball penalties that were not unlike some of the plays we saw in England this weekend, and nobody yelled about them. And so it always feels like England, they're a little bit farther behind in adapting to these things. And yeah, listen, um, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, the, the more we can clarify this, and move this closer in the direction of if it hits your hand, it's a handball. I'm I'm for that. I, I was never comfortable with this notion of referees having to judge intent. And yeah, and it does seem like in England they've always had this higher threshold of in terms of what they think constitutes a handball. I mean, anything short of like a Dikembe Mutombo swatting the ball away, English commentators try to talk themselves into not being a handball. And I, I think the game needs to go in the other direction of of, you know, now look, there are instances, I, I, I'm not sure I'm totally comfortable if a guy is in the wall on a free kick and a guy blasts a shot that's going to go right in his face and he just instinctively puts his arms up to cover himself and hits his arm. I suppose there are situations like that. Would you be comfortable with, with that being a handball penalty or are there instances like no, that I, where there's look, a little I, bit of wiggle I'm, room? Yeah, there is there is wiggle
0: room. But here, here's the here's how I would approach if I was playing today. Anything that hits my arm or hand, has the potential to be called as a foul, and then I would act accordingly. Okay, and would it change the way that I defend? Absolutely. Would it change the way I go up for the ball? Absolutely. Okay. Look, we were taught there was a time where we were taught to go up with our arms in the air, and we know take away the the, the handball rule. Just in terms of you know elbowing and hand to face and all those different things. Right now, we know that you can't do that, and you can adjust. Because people say that's it's unnatural. You can't jump without your hands in the air. The human, the human body will adjust. Guess you know what's unnatural? Kicking a ball. Okay. And yet we have built an entire game around kicking a ball. Everybody adjusts. Oftentimes, when you throw a ball to a baby, the first thing that they will do is grab it with their hands. Okay. We will adjust. We will figure it out. There's our game is based on an unnatural act. Okay. So going up in the air, you know, for example, the The Andy Carroll header uh, this weekend that went off of uh, Dyer. People say, well, he didn't even see it. He was backwards. Well, you know what? If you're going to go up for a ball in the air and a challenge in the air, you better win it. And if it goes over your head because you have piss poor timing, okay, and you couldn't get to that ball, buyer beware, my friend, okay? And if you have your arms out, yeah, it's going to be called as a penalty. So maybe either you win that ball or you choose not to go up for that ball. Uh, defenders defending with their arms behind the back because i've said i've said look just make the just make the law that if it touches your hand or arm it's a foul and we and be done with it okay if that means that there are attacking players who have the ability the incredible skill to hit it off of your arm or your hand so be it it encourages well will be there'll be more goals which i don't think is a bad thing it encourages attacking play it makes defenders think twice before they defend and certainly think twice about the risk when they're defending in the, uh, in the penalty box or in the, in the penalty area there. So I, I, I know maybe, maybe I'm not seeing something and, and maybe there is something that I'm missing. Believe me, I, I don't see everything and I miss things. Uh, I miss things all the time, but I don't see this as a problem. And I see it changing with time. Like you said, Masia, this is they're They're at a different period in that, in that progression uh, sh- uh, uh, you know, of, of learning what the rule is, how to, how to adjust to that uh, rule. And look, adapt or die, all right? You're gonna have to figure out how to play in
1: this, uh, in this new world that we are, that we are living in. All right, next up, at Al Bow Wow, why is Atlanta so bad? I don't see any real game speed. So if they can't stretch other teams vertically, I guess maybe horizontally, but they don't seem to be able to do that either exclamation point followed by question mark did they just get rid of too many key players
0: yes (laughs) I mean you know first well first off you didn't get rid of it but when you lose a goal scorer like Joseph Martinez uh you are you are you're losing not just a goal scorer but in in many ways the heart of the team and the style of that team and the fear that you put into others um I think it should be no... So so that was to be expected. Guy goes down for the year, you're going to have to adjust. And they certainly didn't adjust. That he went down in a year that they had already made massive changes, um, you know, whether it's a, a Gressel or a Nagby or or anybody else out there. Uh, and and Pitti Martinez not necessarily being the dominant force that they expected to be. I mean, I, it's just a series of... Uh, of bad decisions combined with bad luck. Um, you know, the coach, all of, those, all of those different things had dramatic effect. I mean, look, LAFC lost Carlos Vela and they have struggled to regain and live up to what we have come to expect from uh, from that team. So you got to get it right. But I think it is as simple as the choices that they made ended up being the wrong choices, um, at least at least for now. Who knows? Maybe a long-term type of uh, play, it, it changes it, but that they have had to fire the coach is almost, it's not almost, it is admitting that they made a bad choice there. The way that that coach looked at the game was very, very different than what they had established as an identity and a, and a style of play which is a head scratcher, not that you can't do it, but that style of play and that identity was what had given them their their success. And rather than choosing to continue it, they chose to go in a completely different direction, hoping to continue it, but in a completely different way. And it didn't work. And the players that they got rid of, uh, ultimately looking back, were consistent, were talented, and they didn't replace them with anything even close uh, and certainly not better than what they had. So I mean, it's it's really not it's really not that difficult <laughs> in, in terms of looking at what they uh, did and didn't do. And now they got to fix it. And that that they are this super club that they have have such, such high expectations both internally and the way that we view them uh, means that they're uh, they don't have a lot of time. However, and this is the caveat um, when it comes to Atlanta. And as I've said this before, if you're going to screw up, if you're going to fail, if you're going to make mistakes, do it in 2020, because more so than any other time, you will be forgiven. And I know they, they fired the coach, and and I, and I get that. But I think that in totality, they are going to be kind of given um, a redo. And it's, it's kind of a gimme 2020. And I think that applies also to LAFC. And I think people will say, well, it was this crazy anomaly of, of of 2020 and if they get back co- on course in 2021 i think most if not all will be forgiven when it comes to 2020 for them and others what else Mossy?
1: a few other miscellaneous mls notes uh the galaxy lose to seattle no shame in that but uh they're now winless in four and it's that that good feeling that nice run they went on right after the bubble and yeah, it seems like oh, that's evaporated, and and they're back near the bottom of the table again. For all the grief we give San Jose and Matias Almeida, they're only one point behind the Galaxy. So uh, this, this it, did season.
0: did anything? Uh, and I'm just spitballing here. Did anything change in terms of the Galaxy <laughs> in this this uh, <laughs> this fall from grace over the last four games? I'm trying to think. Is anything? Are you doing anything different? Can you point to anything, Mossy? Is it... oh wait, Chicharito. Possibly? Is that fair? I mean, am I, am I being unfair? Uh, is it is it just, could it possibly be that the, the Los Angeles Galaxy is just a better team without Javier Chicharito Hernandez on the field? And look, he is a good player. At times, he has been a great player. But I think it's becoming readily apparent that it's just from a from a pure soccer standpoint, just not a good fit. It's not. It's not that it shouldn't have been done. They had to do it, as I've said time and time again. It was the right call, but the way that he plays and the way the Galaxy is in twenty twenty, it, it's hard to see that it's compatible in in any way. And I'm not. I'm not blaming him. Uh, it's just. It's just not working. If there was a chance for them to in a a certain way cut their losses or save face and sell Chicharito right now, would you do it? I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think you have, or, or maybe you say, look, it's just not enough of a sample size. It's just 2020 is such a strange year that we're just going to let this one play out as it, as it may, but man, Oh man. Uh, they, they they look like a different team and now we're back looking at the galaxy saying well what's going on and when you look at it w- the only thing that really has changed is uh, is chicharito being back on the field and and i know i feel bad because i don't want to blame everything uh, everything on him but i don't know what you know i don't know what they're going to do, uh what they're going to do uh, other stuff from MLS cuz w- let's hit it here while we're talking a little bit a little about MLS mossy did you see the uh, the introduction of the legend, Iguain playing for Inter Miami. Did you see any of this game? Uh, they went up to Philadelphia, uh, one of the, one of the best teams, if not the best team, in Major League Soccer, and uh, it did not go well. The Inter Miami not only lost, but Iguain played. Although he almost scored a penalty or a, a bicycle kick, and then on the penalty, I mean, I'm here in Los Angeles. That that was happening uh, back there in Philadelphia. If I look out my window, I can probably still see this ball. Uh, he stepped up, grabbed the ball, wanted to take the penalty, and just completely sky hit it. It was all or nothing. Either it was going 100 miles an hour into the upper ninety, or it was going 100 miles an hour into orbit, and it is still in orbit at the at this point. So not a great introduction to Major League Soccer. And to add insult to injury, he then got into uh, into kind of a uh, a uh, screaming match with uh, the Philadelphia Union players, who were obviously taken aback and and uh, you know, we're, we're not happy with something and it couldn't have been just that he, just that penalty. Okay. So it it had to do with something. And I, this brings up a a much bigger conversation, a long one. We're not going to get into it too, too much, but I do think that existing MLS players and certainly domestic players who aren't making a lot of money, there is a simmering uh, and, and understandable type of resentment that comes out at different times for players who come to the Who come to the league make a tremendous amount of money, and maybe they don't feel um, are worthy of it, or or are producing at the level. We just talked about Chicharito, and that can come out in 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 different ways. But I I thought it was I thought it was great theater. I thought it was uh, fun to see. And welcome to MLS, Mr. Iguain. <laughs>
1: David Beckham had an infamous penalty, penalty attempt against, I think it was Turkey where he skied it well over the bar. And, and that Iguain attempt was almost an homage to his owner uh, in similar fashion. But yeah, the, the sample, by the way, for Chicharito you mentioned earlier is now 510 minutes on the field and one goal in MLS this season and inter Miami are hoping that Iguain does doesn't go much the same way. So yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see these two high priced big name strikers and how they fare the remainder of this uh MLS campaign.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of me wants these things to work out. I mean, it's good for the teams. It's good for the league. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a good message to send, but also part of me, I, I, I get it wants to say, you know what, from afar, you have thought that this is what our league and our soccer was about and welcome to the reality. And you might have thought that it was a step down. And you might have thought that you were just going to uh, stroll along and be successful. And uh, it's different. And keep in mind also that Iguain, like a lot of these uh, big-name players that come over, for the most part, they've spent almost all of their careers playing for the super clubs, playing for the biggest clubs, playing for teams that have all the talent and all the money. And therefore, 70 80% of the time when they step on the field, they know they're going to win. And this is the first time that he's in a long time, let's say, uh, been involved with a team where, when he steps on the field, he doesn't know that he's going to win. And this type of parody, and this manufactured parody, is something that is unique. And that, in and of itself, is an adjustment for uh, for players, especially big name players that are trying to figure it out. And I love I love watching that adjustment. And some of them do adjust, and they figure out very very quickly that they're not in Kansas any. Well, they might be in Kansas depending on. Uh, uh, where they are playing but they are certainly not at the uh at the super club in the way that europe defines a super club scenarios anymore uh mossy anything else uh, to say here uh, about say our, our atlanta or anything MLS. else mls uh
1: this upcoming weekend is orlando yes. against the red bulls on big fox and Red Bulls playing well all of a sudden back-to-back 4-1 wins over Inter Miami and Montreal. So we'll see if they can keep it going. Big it's- Fox, big
0: Fox MLS, myself and Stuart Holden and John Strong will be, uh, will be bringing it to you. Can't
1: wait. It's going to be fun. Uh, and we'll end on this at digital era. Are you concerned the national team will lack chemistry with no playing time this year? And we can use this question as a jumping off point to also talk about the gold cup draw, which I know you participated in.
0: Okay, so as it pertains to the national team, uh, first off, everybody's kind of in the same boat. Um, the problem for Greg Burhalter is that he came in uh, in normal times and wanted to do something dramatically and drastically different in terms of the style of play. And he fundamentally wanted to change the way the U.S. men's national team plays. Admirable, um, I can respect that. As I've said before, for, for too long, we have winged it. And I'd rather have somebody with a uh, a plan, even a flawed plan, than no plan at all. And Greg Berhalter does. And there is no one that believes more in that than Greg Berhalter. He is a true believer. And you he, he better be if he's the one that is uh, laying this, this out. You want someone like that to believe in it. The problem for him is that in... In a job where you already have limited amount of time with the players, it is that much more so. And he's being asked, well, he is asking us to accept and he is being tasked with fundamentally changing the way that they play in less time. And so this is going to be the big question. And we're not going to find out. I mean, who knows when we are actually going to see this team play? There's talk about a potential game in Europe. Nothing's going to happen in the US for a while. Talk about a potential game in Europe. And by the way, that might only be uh, a certain amount of the players be, uh, that are involved and play, can players travel, can players get released? So who knows when Greg Berhalter is going to have all of his, uh, of the tools at his disposal. We, we, we talk about next summer and uh, the gold cup that's coming and the finals of the nations uh, league and the, um, and then obviously qualifying for the world cup that's going to start up, but that's, that's a long time from now. And the, and potentially we're not going to see the U.S. men's national team play for months and months and months. So, yes, I, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not concerned in that I think that Greg Berhalter is going to have the most talent at his disposal of any men's national team in, uh, coach in history. I am concerned with if he wants to do something that's a bridge too far with, with that group, either because they just can't do it from a talent perspective or they just don't have enough time to implement it. That's, that's where uh, my concern concern lies. Um, you mentioned the, uh, you, before I mentioned the Gold Cup, do you want to add anything to, uh, to what I just said regarding, are you concerned with the national team right now?
1: No, the, the thing I find fascinating, and I guess this could roll right into the Gold Cup discussion, is when we last left off international football in late 2019, you might recall Mexico had beaten the U.S. in the Gold Cup final, and then had thumped them 3-0 in a friendly, which I believe you covered for Fox uh, I think it was in New Jersey. And the prevailing wisdom, remember, the U.S. was still in that sort of post-Trinidad funk, and there was so much cynicism and apathy and negativity surrounding the program. The prevailing wisdom was that Mexico was miles ahead of the U.S. Uh, we said that on this podcast. I think everybody believed it. And then international football stopped. But in the interim, there's been this incredible spate of young U.S. players going to the biggest clubs in Europe, um, to the point now where if the U.S. and Mexico took the field tomorrow, at least from a European club perspective, the U.S. would actually be able to roll out a more impressive lineup. And so I'm just wondering what the U.S.-Mexico dynamic is going to be now the next time they take the field against each other, because you know it seems like without, without necessarily even playing a game or doing anything on the field, the, the vibe has changed here. And I wonder how you know people in Mexico, I mean, they, they were really bent out of shape when you had all these players leaving league MX to go to MLS and the suggestion that MLS might be catching up or perhaps even surpassing league MX. And now there's a lot of talk that the U S is producing better young players in Mexico. And there's all this hand-wringing in Mexico over the fact that, wait a minute, why are their players going to the Juventus and Barcelona's and and Chelsea's and and why don't we have guys playing in those clubs? And so it's now Mexico. That's got a little bit of a complex here towards the U S and it's created a bit of a fascinating dynamic when this rivalry resumes. I look, I, I do agree with you that the, the climate has
0: changed and, and for the better from a U.S. men's national team perspective. And it it is much more positive. Now, are we completely out of that funk and that darkness? No. And it won't be until we qualify again for a world cup and appear at a world cup and do well, but everything that you said is true, but all of it is based on perception, right? And the association with big clubs around the world. And there certainly is some reality in that, but I think you'd agree with me. It would not surprise you or or me or anybody out there in the least if the U.S. team were to go down to Azteca and lose to lose to Mexico, despite all the wonderful associations and names uh, and and CVs that we that we now have to offer. Sergio Des could be the starting uh, right or left back for Barcelona, and he could go into Azteca Stadium and get torn a new one, and it shouldn't come as a surprise. Okay. <laughs> Uh, And it doesn't make him a bad player. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to be at Barcelona. But yes, yes, it helps. But it doesn't overcome some of the, (laughs) uh, the realities and the challenges that games in CONCACAF can bring or the international game just in general can bring. And Having players playing at big clubs, what we associate with big clubs is good and it hedges our bets, it hedges our bets but it doesn't solve all of our problems. And it doesn't automatically mean that, uh, that players are going to be successful.
1: You would agree though, the emergence of all these young players and their exploits at club level and, and the level of club they're now playing at has kind of brought some excitement again, jolted this program, lifted some of that apathy to the point where if we weren't living in a pandemic and let's say the US was playing a couple of friendlies here in this October window and Greg Berhalter had all the players at his disposal and he called them all up and you had Pulisic and Rain and McKinney and Adams and Dest all on the field together. There would be some genuine excitement surrounding those games. And in terms of attendance and ratings, you would feel like, okay, that apathy is lifted and and fans are engaged again. Do you, do you get that sense that, that, I would,
0: except that I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past, I wouldn't put anything past the American soccer public in that we find <laughs> ways to, uh, to poke holes in ourselves and we find ways to find negatives, uh, uh, something that we're not, uh, that we are not doing. And I think that there, there's certainly a segment out there that looks at it as any success that, you, that you've mentioned and rightly pointed to, it's in spite of. Uh, as opposed to because, and that we are still backwards ass in the way that we do things and we still uh, have a horrible culture and um, we still have talent that is seeping uh, through the cracks and we don't know what we're doing and we don't really know what soccer is on or off the field and that we're never going to compete with the the rest of the world. But yes, I do think that sitting here today, even with the pandemic, on Tuesday, September 29th, I think the U.S. men's national team program and the way that that program is perceived is is much more positive than it has been in certainly the last couple of years. So that's a good thing.
1: Uh, and so as to the Gold Cup draw, the U.S. drawn in a group with Canada, Martinique and TBD, which most people expect it's going to be Haiti, if you look at the bracket for the preliminary stuff. And. Um, and so I've, I've mentioned before, I think the emergence of Canada is is the, the biggest story, the most fun development in CONCACAF in recent years. And so I now really look forward to US Canada games. And we're going to get one right off the bat in the group stage of the, of the Gold Cup, which I'm really looking forward to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I've told you that in well, the first World Cup I ever watched was in 1986. I remember at the Pikes Peak Invitational in Colorado, uh, I was 16 years old and I was watching the World Cup. And I was so proud of the the fact that Canada was in the world cup and it's the last time that they were in the world cup, the emergence of Canada. We've, we've had emergences before. I think that this one is more justified than in the, the than in the past. So to have them in our group, it's a good thing because there's already a, uh, uh, a rivalry and you know, it's a, it's, it's a, to have that as their, as a, as our first game. I think if you get through that, you're, you're fine. You know, the biggest problem always with goal cups is the disparity in talent, uh, it from, from top to bottom, you know, the good teams are very, very good. And then it, it gets very mediocre to bad very, very, uh, very, very quickly. But if you are CONCACAF, um, you, you want to try to build this tournament up and in doing so build up teams that in the past haven't had opportunities. You know, I, I, as you mentioned, I did the, uh, the draw for CONCACAF and, um, this is the first time in history that we have ever had a draw. This is also the first time in history where the potential for a US-Mexico matchup could actually happen in the semis and the quarters as opposed to uh, in the past where strategically the teams have been laid out to maximize the tournament from an, uh, a business uh, standpoint. This is being done with a whole lot more transparency. Uh, there's a draw, everybody's there, the potential for cross uh cross-pollination I guess uh, exists that hasn't uh, hasn't in the past and there are you know there's a as you mentioned a play-in type of situation that offers more opportunity this is a 16 team tournament um, 12 of the teams are already decided uh, including the. US three of the teams will be decided and then there is a guest in our friends from Qatar who we know are hosting the 22 22- uh, World Cup that will be the one guest in uh, in next summer's Gold Cup. Now, this is all the best laid plans. We, we don't know what 2021 is going to look like. We are optimistic and hopeful that there are games and that are all of these tournaments, whether it's the Gold Cup, whether it's Copa America, whether it's the Olympics, all of these different things. We are hopeful that that, uh, that, that happens, but um, we don't know. We don't know what it's going to look like. And so once again, Greg Burhalter and company uh, are going to be in this Gold Cup. And we at times we've seen the Gold Cup used on young players or players that haven't had a lot of experience. I don't think that Greg Berhalter can necessarily afford to do that. But, you know, if there's Olympics also that are going to happen, those players and players that are eligible are going to be taken away. So, you know, the summer is going to have a lot of soccer, which is, well, hopefully is going to have a lot of soccer, which is a good thing what that national team looks like and how far along and how important that summer ends up being to Greg Burhalter is, uh, is TBD. Anything that's uh, stood out to you when it came to uh, the gold cup draw or the gold cup in general right now? I mean, cause we've just seen the October friendlies that have been, uh, have been scrapped and we're just, we just keep kind of kicking it down the line.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to, different approaches that like CONCACAF and COMBOL have taken COMBOL is looking to power through and, and play. And yeah, this is maybe not a conversation for today, but we should talk about maybe next week uh, MLS's decision not to release players for those uh qualifiers and all the controversy that's that generating. Also, it's sparking this whole larger club versus country debate where some people say, well, come on, we're, we're all in this together, the soccer world and clubs should be more acquiescent. And they say, no, wait a minute, we're paying these players, these salaries and we're not going to let, let them go and, and be put in unhealthy situations. And so, I mean, that is a whole debate that's raging right now. I've read several articles about it, so (laughs) definitely worth a discussion at some point.
0: All right, Mossy, anything else from uh, Ask Alexi's standpoint? Uh, That's it. All right, my one for the road this week is, uh, I was thinking about uh, Stephen Colbert. Uh, We are in the political season, and certainly he, uh, as Stephen Colbert, and as uh, his previous character, Stephen Colbert on the Colbert uh, Report, um, talked about and, and thought about uh, politics. Uh, I was privileged enough, I guess, uh, and I had the pleasure of being on the Colbert Report a couple of times over the years. And, you know, I would come on and we would talk about soccer. A lot of it often had to do with uh, soccer players, uh faking and embellishing and diving and doing all that or just general kind of thoughts about what was going on a lot of times it was surrounding world cups and what was uh what was going on and um, he once told me that the chair in which his guests sat um, they often called uh sitting lawless <laughs> And he told me that story uh, uh, once because that had come to mean, this is where the guest is sitting, they're sitting lawless. And, um, uh, and that, was, uh, that was fun to hear that I had even registered on his daily <laughs> type, of, uh, type of radar not, and not only registered, but it had uh, you know, an impact on that show, which is why in 2014, when uh, the Colbert Report came to an end, Uh, I was, again, uh, incredibly surprised, but incredibly privileged and honored to be invited to the rap show, the end, the final show, which uh, was an absolute hoot and just a wonderful, wonderful evening because of the amount of stars that were brought. And part of the appeal of that show was that while he was playing a character, um, it wasn't strictly any. Political side, and so many different types of people were were brought on and had uh, what nowadays is is a rarity, which is you know civil and courteous and respectful type of conversations, even uh, though they might be from different sides of the spectrum when it came to their beliefs, political or anything else. But anyway, uh, I'll never forget going to New York for this final uh, for this final um, show, at which point. Uh, after his show was done, the final moment was bringing everybody out on, on stage. And this is a hundred plus people out on stage that had played different parts in the show over the years. And little old me was out there sitting next to um, George Lucas and, uh, you know, talking to Paulina Poroskova and, <laughs> and um you know, sitting at a table with, um, uh, you know, politicians and musicians and actors and Alan Alda is, is over here. And um, it was just absolutely surreal and a surreal night. And if you go on my Twitter feed, uh, there's a picture at the end of like myself and George Lucas and Cory Booker and just these incredibly random people thrown together. All of that is to say is that 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 night was special just because I was in awe of the the stardom that was around me, but also I think in a in a wonderful way it it showed what we as Americans and what America can be in that we all have different ideas and we all have different viewpoints. and we all come from different sides of uh, of, of a political perspective uh, spectrum and and all that. but what we have lost, as I said, is the ability to come together and to celebrate the country that we have, but also to celebrate our incredible and wonderful diversity and our diversity of thought. And whether it applies to soccer or anything else out there, that was a night where everybody came together that was that were drawn together by this one show. And it was, uh, as I said, a, a, a fun night, but it was representative of what... I think America at its best can be, and what American soccer at its best can be, because you know I, I I mentioned that we as America, as the American soccer community, oftentimes find find ways, and we'll go out of our way to find ways to punch holes in things, and to be negative, and to poo-poo things, and our ability to work together, and our ability to work together in a respectful and courteous way. I think ultimately that is what is going to enable us to have success both on and off the field. And look, I might be idealistic, but oftentimes there's too little of that. And um, I do think that there is common ground out there. And it doesn't mean that we can't vehemently disagree. and doesn't mean we can't argue. You know what? It doesn't even mean that at times we can't scream and yell. And it doesn't mean at times we won't even say some things that we may, uh, that we may regret. But ultimately, if our sport, if, and, By extension, if our country is going to progress forward, uh, we're going to have to find a way to accept and to celebrate and to respect the fact that not everybody thinks the way that we think. Not everybody is like-minded. And that's not only a good thing, but ultimately, I think that's what makes uh, this country the greatest country in the world. Uh, All right, guys. Thank you so much. Anything uh, to add before we head off, Mossy? That's it. All right. We will see you again uh, next week. We will hear, uh, you will hear from us again uh, next week on another State of the Union pod. Please continue to download and to rate and to subscribe and to review and to do all those things uh, that we love that uh, that you do. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back at our normal time next week. Apologi- apologies again for the uh, 24-hour delay here. It could not be helped. Uh, but uh, onward and upward. I hope everybody is doing everything they need to do to stay safe and sane in these extraordinary times. And we will talk again next week on the State of the Union podcast. Until then, size the day.